2: This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in October of 2022.
1: The problem we've got with autism is you're going from Elon Musk and Einstein to somebody as an adult can't dress themselves and we call it the same thing. That's horrible overgeneralization by the verbal thinkers.
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Temple Grandin talks about autism, neurodiversity, and different kinds of thinking.
1: I think the first step is we got to realize that different kinds of thinking exist. I think it's hard for some verbal thinkers to imagine thought without words.
0: Dr. Temple Grandin is a scientist and animal behaviorist, and she has had a profound effect on how humanely livestock in this country are treated. She's also had a huge effect on the way we understand people on the autism spectrum. Drawing on her own experience as an autistic person, she has written or co-written many groundbreaking books exploring autism and celebrating neurodiversity. Her first book, Emergence, was published in 1986, and it changed the way the world views autism. Her most recent book, Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions, is changing the way people think about thinking. She's been recognized on the list of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, She's the subject of an Emmy and Golden Globe winning biographical film, and she owns numerous patents for her original designs. There is truly nobody quite like her. Dr. Grandin, welcome to Design Matters. It's really, really good to be here today. Thank you. Dr. Grandin, is it true that you believe if they were alive today, Albert Einstein, Mozart, and Nikola Tesla would probably
1: be diagnosed as autistic? Yes, definitely, because Einstein had delayed speech. So today, especially with the way that uh, people get services, to get services, he'd have to be put in an autism class. You can argue over whether or not he's autistic, but he'd end up in an autism class today, because that's where most speech-delayed kids are going. And also in my work on designing equipment in the meat industry, I worked with brilliant people that owned metalworking shops, people that had maybe 20 patents. And one guy that built very important equipment for me, oh, he was definitely autistic, (laughs) but he had grown up working on cars. So then he discovered that mechanical things were interesting. But the problem I'm seeing today is kids getting locked into the label and they're growing up, they've never used tools, they don't get a chance to work on cars. We have all kinds of need today for people that can do mechanical things, like fix elevators, build equipment for factories.
0: I experienced that firsthand the elevator in the college that I work in is perpetually broken and there seems to be nobody in New York City that can fix it and you'd think hmm New York City elevators that would that would be a a a rough thing to
1: believe and we need those skills we got water systems falling apart wires falling off electrical towers you need these people that can fix things and design things engineering is not all mathematics there's the visual thinking part of engineering, and then there is the mathematical part, and you need to have both. And my kind of mind's getting screened out because we can't do algebra. Oh, I
0: know, I know. I I was so heartened when I read that because my nephew, my my fourteen year well now he's fifteen when he was fourteen and in. Ninth grade, he had just a terrible time with algebra, just an absolutely terrible time. And everybody's sort of been pulling their hair out. How do we how do we get him to be more interested in, in math? And I'm going to give them a copy of your new book.
1: Well, what we need to be doing is when when a kid ends up with a label, he might be an extreme object visualizer like me, or it's another kid who's an extreme mathematician and does it in his head, and the verbal people are forcing him to to do you know do step by step. It's not how they think. And then a lot of people are mixtures of different kinds of thinking. Yes, I I love the test in your book. (laughs) You're not going to find an extreme object visualizer like me and an extreme mathematician in the same person. Well, I want to go back in history just a little bit before we talk about your book.
0: Your full name is Mary Temple Grandin. When did you begin to use Temple as your first name?
1: Used Temple ever since I was a child. And, um, you know, for years, nobody uh, knew my first name was Mary. It was only on my passport. And then TSA forced me to um, put it on my plane tickets.
0: By the time you were three months old you've written about how you began to stiffen in your mother's arms and she realized you didn't wanna be cuddled. And you've written that as you got older, you began to chew up puzzles and spit the cardboard mush out on the floor. You developed a violent temper, screamed continually. And by the time you were three, you weren't speaking at all. And your mom took you to the world's leading special needs researchers at the Boston Children's Hospital. What did the doctors think at the time?
1: Well, you got to remember, this is 1949. I was born in 1947, and she actually took me to a top neurologist who uh, immediately looked at, checked me to make sure I didn't have epilepsy, and he made sure I wasn't deaf, referred me to a little speech therapy school that two teachers taught out of the basement of their house. There was some Down syndrome kids in that. And they just said, well, this uh, teacher's just really good at working with these kids. And I can remember some of those speech therapy lessons, and it's very similar to the things that they were doing now always encouraging me to use my words, slowing down, because when people talked fast, it sounded like gibberish. There was also a lot of emphasis on turn-taking, learning how to wait and take turns. Really, really important. And then by four, I was verbal. And by five, I was mainstreamed in a normal kindergarten in a small school.
0: Didn't doctors originally think that you should be institutionalized?
1: Well, actually, um, yeah, that was kind of what was done with, with kids that had my problems in the 50s. See, the thing is, now what's known is you, what, kids with autism, you look very severe when they're very young, and you don't know how they're going to come out. You've got to work with them and do your early intervention. In the glorious HBO movie about your life, your
0: mother is portrayed as your fiercest advocate, That's someone who right. never stopped fighting for you.
1: As you were growing up, did you feel her belief in you? Well, she always encouraged me. I was good at art and she always encouraged my ability in art. And of course, art's the basis of my design work. And I would just draw the same horse head over and over again. And she would say, let's draw the whole horse. Let's draw the stable. She'd take my art ability and expand it. She suggested using other media like watercolors and poster paints and pencils and draw different things. I actually got given a book on perspective drawing. I also very early on was learning to shop, learning table manners. This is where 50s upbringing actually was helpful, much more structured. I read
0: somewhere that you met some an, an older student who had never used a pair of scissors.
1: That's right. And in, in my book, Visual Thinking, I describe a conversation I have with a doctor who was pulling his hair out, trying to teach interns how to sew up cuts, Ugh. and they had never used scissors. And I had a girl in my class who had never used a ruler or tape measure to measure anything. You know, we've got kids growing up totally removed from the practical world. Now, my kind of mind is an object visualizer. I grew up using tools. I would spend hours and hours and hours tinkering to make things like parachutes and bird kites. And did the adults make them for me? No, they just let me tinker.
0: By the time you were in the fourth grade, you began to be bullied in school and the kids called you chatterbox because of what you've said was constant conversation on a particular
1: topic. Well, yeah, I would try to ask constant questions. My grandfather, when we visit with him, he was co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. And we would just sit, we, you know, we'd go in the other room and while he's smoking his pipe and eating some cheese and having a beer, he'd explain to me why the sky was blue, why it was grass green. So he liked telling me that stuff. And I'd ask him, you know, why do tides go in and out? Why is the moon have phases? And he would explain that stuff. How did you manage sort
0: of this dual world of family, you know, your grandfather, your mother, your aunt being so supportive and loving, and yet the sort of bullying and really quite terrible behavior you experienced at school. How did you manage both of those at the same time?
1: Fortunately, I didn't have bullying in elementary school because Mrs. Deach, the third grade teacher, she was the head teacher for our elementary school, explained to the other kids that I had a disability that was not visible, like leg braces. A lot of kids in the 50s had polio and they had leg braces. It wasn't something you could see. And they explained to the other kids they need to help me. High school is a disaster of bullying and teasing. I got kicked out of a regular high school for throwing a book at a girl who teased me. And then mother had worked as a reporter on, on doing a, on public TV shows on, on mostly disturbed children. And she'd actually researched all the special schools in New England. So she picked out three of them and she let me pick a school. And I picked the one that had horses and a farm. And I didn't care about studying. You know what the school did? They put me to work running a horse barn. You know, they said, let me get to my adolescence. Well, mother wasn't too happy about you know, backing off on academics. But now what I'm seeing now with a lot of these kids is they work really hard on the academics. No life skills. I've learned how to work. I was in charge of a horse barn. Nine stalls every day to clean. Put them in and out. Feed them. I was responsible for it. Make sure the feed box is closed. I was responsible for that. I learned how to work. That was really important. The other thing is the only place I was not bullied was friends through shared interests like horseback riding, model rockets, and electronics. Really important. Today, it might be robotics, 3D printing. Uh, It could be a sport. It could be band, a choir, something where there's friends who uh, shared interests. The year
0: after you were expelled (laughs) for throwing a book at a girl who was teasing you, your parents got divorced, and several years later, your mom remarried, and you were able to spend a summer on the Arizona ranch of your stepdad's sister. And That's right. it was there that you noticed that some of the animals appeared to relax after a cattle squeeze
1: chute was applied. That's right. So I was introduced to beef cattle for the first time, and I watched them get vaccinated and this device that squeezed them, It's called a squeeze chute. And I noticed it kind of calmed them down. So then I built a device where I could squeeze myself. And I eventually got it to operate with air saunders and that was some of my skilled trades work, Built it all by myself. Did you have a
0: sense at the time about how or why it helped you?
1: Well, deep pressure's calming. You see, then in the early 70s, I met an occupational therapist named Lorna King, and she was using deep pressure with things like cushions with um, autistic kids in Arizona to calm them down. Now, again, deep pressure doesn't work on everybody. It only works on some of them. The sensory issues are very variable. But that kind of validated uh, me. Uh, I was great friends with Lorna, and she, uh, I did some early, early autism talks in the 70s. The influence of
0: your squeeze box or hug box can now be seen in things like gravity blankets and yeah, even right. special pressure shirts to help dogs who experience that's severe right. stress during thunderstorms. It's called the Thunder Shirt. So thank you for that. It's helped my dogs quite a lot. It did.
1: The Thunder Shirt help your dogs, and it seems where it really seems to help is like on separation distress, too, um, it seems to help. At this point in your life, were you
0: aware that you had autism? Because I, I understand that you didn't actually get officially diagnosed until much later in life.
1: I was the psychiatrist by the time I was five and six. And yeah, it was basically saying I was autistic.
0: The summer after you developed the squeeze box, you began to attend Hampshire Country School in New Hampshire. And the school was founded in 1948 by a Boston child psychologist for students of exceptional potential that That's have not right. been successful in a typical setting. And it was there that you met William Carlock, a science teacher who had worked for NASA.
1: Yes. And I'd been there for about three years before um, uh, William Carlock um, became a science teacher. And what he did is he gave me interesting projects. The uh, The HBO movie showed all the things I built, the gate you could open up from a car, the squeeze machine, optical illusion room that I had made, the dipping vat project. And then he gave me interesting projects. He says, well, then you have to study in order to um, go to graduate school and become a scientist. And I still couldn't do algebra, but the other classes I was just goofing off. And then when I finally went to college, thank goodness, the introductory math class at that college was not algebra. It was basically called Finite Math, Probability, Matrices, and Statistics. And the nice math teacher tutored me in his office. And I asked for help right away. I didn't wait until I had flunked out of the course. I failed the first quiz. I asked for help. Big mistake students make, not asking for help soon enough. And that's something I did. Talk about why algebra is so difficult for some students well i i'm what's called an object visualizer and this is described in the visual thinking book you have object visualizers who think in photo pictures then you got visual spatial your pattern thinkers your mathematical students and then of course you get your verbal thinkers who think in words and the problem i have is algebra has nothing there to visualize now i can remember specific formula like pi times radius squared to size a hydraulic cylinder and when i say that i'm seeing a hydraulic cylinder. You see, that is not abstract. But abstract math I can't do. You've got to understand that different thinkers exist. And a lot of people are in the middle of the road. But that extreme visual thinker who works in the shop, who can build anything, we need those skills.
0: In your 1995 book, Thinking in Pictures, you revealed that you thought that all individuals with autism thought the way that you did in photographic-specific images or, as you put it, thinking in pictures. Can you talk about now how, how your thinking has evolved a bit? Well,
1: that was wrong. And Amazon had just come out and i read the reviews. And several people on the spectrum said, well, that's not true. So then I started now thinking back to all the people I'd met And I started to figure out, yes, there are some that think in words, and these tend to be the history lovers that love lists and facts and sports statistics, things like that. And then I was reading a book by uh, Clara Clavin Park about her daughter, Jessie, and it was called Exiting Nirvana. It's out of print now, unfortunately. But that was where I got the idea of thinking in patterns rather than pictures. What does that mean to think in patterns? Well, you know, Jessie would paint beautiful pictures of houses where she put all kinds of geometric shapes on a, on a picture of somebody's house. And I'm going, this is patterns rather than pictures. Then later on, when I did the autistic brain, I was surfing in the middle of the night and I went into the reference list. I didn't do the citations of the list, and I found this paper on two types of visualizers and I looked up the paper and I go, wow this describes my mind and then the mathematical mind. Hmm. I then got that term off the title of paper, then I found some other papers.
0: By the time the expanded edition was published in 2006, you realized it had been wrong to presume that every person with autism processed information in the same way. In the 2006 version, you described three types of specialized thinking.
1: Yeah, there's three types of thinking, which now the correct names for, which back then I didn't use the correct names for them because I didn't know them at that time, was object visualizer. I was calling it photorealistic visual thinking is what I was calling it. Then there's the pattern thinker. I was calling it a pattern thinker, mathematics. And that's what the scientists call visual spatial. And then, of course, your think- verbal thinker thinks it words. Then on the visual thinking book, the big thing that's new in that uh, is a huge skill loss problem we've got. And yes. I didn't realize what a big skill loss we had until I went to four places in 2019, right before COVID hit. I went to two state-of-the-art pork plants where all the equipment was imported mostly from Holland. I went to a state-of-the-art poultry plant. All of the machinery inside it came from Holland in 100 shipping containers. And I went to the Steve Jobs Theater and the mothership building of Apple. Yes, And the structural glass walls are from Italy and Germany. And the carbon fiber roof is from dubai and i have a picture of me standing in the middle of that screaming we don't make it anymore yeah and then i'm going we've got a serious problem 20 years ago we made two mistakes in education we took out all the hands-on classes in some schools art sewing woodworking carpentry auto mechanics uh, drafting now you know all those hands-on things so kids are growing up not using tools the other big mistake that was made in industry and I know the most about my industry, is shutting down in-house engineering departments. Back in the 80s and the early 90s, these companies had big shops where they could invent and patent equipment. Those were phased out, and they found it was cheaper and more economical to contract the work out. Now that's coming back to bite them. And it's now turning into a perfect storm on maintaining factories. Uh, maintaining things like electrical towers, uh, water supplies. You sound
0: pessimistic. Do you think that this is something that could be reversed? How do you, I mean- it-
1: Oh, absolutely it could be reversed. What we need to be doing, well, you've got to have kids exposed to tools to get them interested in tools. You gotta have them exposed to industrial design. So let's look at college. You have industrial design, that's the art side. You have engineering, which is the math side. You need both kinds of thinking. And they used to say, well, the stupid kids would go to shop class. I can tell you, the people I work with are not stupid. Well, I love shop. <laughs> Mechanically complicated stuff. You call your most recent book Visual
0: Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. So my very first question is, for my listeners, can you define what it means to do visual thinking?
1: All right, there's actually two types is the object visualizer like me, who are very good at things like photography, art, animal behavior, and mechanics. Because you just see pictures. And okay, you take the machine apart, and then you just see how it works. That is my kind of mind. And I call my kind of mind the clever engineering department. I mean, think packaging machine. Think paper feed mechanism in your printer those are examples of what I call clever engineering. Those aren't made by the mathematicians. Then you have the visual spatial mathematical part of engineering. You've got to make sure the roof of the building doesn't fall down. You have enough electrical power. And then you have um, verbal thinkers who think in words. Now, I was shocked when I found out in my late 30s that other people think in words. And where, let's say we're designing something, an engineer, what it looks like, and its function just go together. You look at the inside of the space station, there's no aesthetics. Where you look at the stuff that Elon Musk has designed, I mean, the spacesuits are really cool. He's got a costume designer to design them. So he's working with a continuum of people. Yeah, that's right. That's what he's doing. Well, first of all, they had a costume designer from a major movie design the spacesuits. Then they had to have engineers make those spacesuits work as spacesuits. So you've got both kinds of thinkers here. The object visualizer, the art person made them look cool, then you had to go to the mathematical engineer to make sure the spacesuits would actually work so that, or you look at something like we're using Zoom right now, visual thinker like me designs the interface Hmm. and then the mathematician programs it.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. Dr. Grandin, you begin the book with a 1957 quote from the linguist Noam Chomsky, and, and you talk about his book, Synthatic, Uh Structures, wherein he claims that language, specifically grammar, is innate. And his ideas have influenced thinkers for over 50 years.
1: Do you agree that grammar is innate? For humans? Uh, well, there, in one of my earlier books, Animals and Translation, I, look, I looked at the research that was done by Sloganoff, I probably said that wrong, on um, prairie dogs, and that in their calls, they have a noun-like function. Well, is it a coyote, a hawk? That'd be a noun, an urgency function, or like an adjective, and the way they hunt, lurker versus going from hole to hole. So that's kind of a grammar function right there. You've got a noun function, urgency function, and a the way this does this coyote go from hole to hole or does he lurk but the other thing on some of this language-based stuff i remember reading something about uniframes of something all i could think of is special pallets they put cars on in the car factory (laughs) which i know is wrong (laughs) what gave you this that that visual yeah i mean i that's wrong and i know it's wrong but i think some of the issues about animal thinking they're still arguing about consciousness Now I get to thinking about. I think it's difficult for somebody who thinks in words to imagine the dog actually thinks, but the dog is a or conscious. The dog is a sensory-based thinker. Smell is a very important to dogs. There's new research that shows that the nose has a direct trunk line to the visual cortex. Oh, trippy! New Cornell research is not in the book. It just came out on the dog smelling in three dimensions. Wow but it is a sensory-based world, not a word-based world. And I think some of this it's hard, I think it's hard for some verbal thinkers to imagine thought without words.
0: Well, there there are scientists or or neurologists that think that thought creates consciousness.
1: Well, yeah, I think what creates consciousness is a certain amount of of hubs, association hubs in the nervous system. And all networks form hubs, whether they're Facebook, whether they are airlines, because I can remember, airlines when there were no hubs, but those hubs like organically form networks form hubs. So in the brain, you've got hubs where, me- where, you- where you get memory information, incoming sensory information, signals coming up from the emotion centers, the frontal cortex centers sort through it, and all this stuff is all intersecting together in big hub. And you have to have a certain amount of centralized hubs, I think, to have consciousness. You write how language is
0: presumed to transform thought into consciousness while visual thinking gets erased
1: somewhere along the way. This has been very trippy for me because in the visual thinking book, this is a really good example of collaboration. Betsy Lerner, my co-author, is a total verbal thinker. but So what we would do is I'd write the initial drafts, and boy, she would smooth them out, straighten them out and organize them. And so that's a perfect example of collaboration between a visual thinker and a word thinker. And there's things that she thinks completely differently than I do. And I can remember when she got a dog and I suggested for her to watch everything the dog does and what he smells. Then she started to get some insight into sensory-based thinking and a dog's world. And I see people yanking dogs away from things they want to smell. Well, that's her life.
0: There are dogs that have been proven to be able to smell cancer. Well, there's a
1: lot of things they can smell and they can be trained to smell and working for all kinds of detection purposes. And their nose is just super powerful. And I kind of use what's the most example maybe a human did. I've read about some wine steward that could identify 2000 wines. Right. And okay, that's maybe as close as a person ever got to a dog. You state that visual
0: thinking is not about how we see, but how the brain processes information.
1: Yes, because it's in my imagination. Like right now I've got to go over and um, I'm doing a lecture in the animal, introductory animal science class and I'm going, oh, I'm going to have to park go to a parking garage and walk over there because I won't be able to find a space in our lot. Okay, right now I'm seeing both places. And then I can start to feel carrying my briefcase and wishing I could have gotten a space in the, by our building. You see that just thinking about something that simple, I'm now seeing the parking garage. Right. Now it's associative. Now I'm seeing the broken sign where one of our students drove our meat refrigerated truck in there and it was too high. Okay. You see, it's associative. Right. It sounds like you have like a visual power of association. Yeah. It's a visual power of association. Give me a keyword, and I'll tell you about how I associate. Give me something kind of creative. Don't give me car or house or something like that. Think of a kind of a creative keyword, and I'll Google it in my mind for you. Egg beater. Egg beater. Mm, Egg beater. Child, I can remember um, beating things with the egg beater. Now I'm seeing the power mixer we had. Now I'm seeing um, eating cookie dough before we baked the cookies. That was really a yummy thing to do. Okay, now I'm seeing a cement, a cement mixer. Okay, the association there is mm. egg beaters mix up things, cement mixers mix. Also, cement mixers are something I've had a lot of experience with. So I have lots of images and memory. So now I'm thinking about my first job, and I can see that cement mixer. It's really hot in Phoenix. And we had to get the steps made on this cattle ramp before that truck got too hot. I remember the engineer going, we've got to get this concrete laid by 10 o'clock. It's like a flip book in your brain. But you see, what I'm getting is a series of associations. But these associations have some logic to them. Mm-hmm. And that's how I solve problems. Because I'll, it's bottom-up thinking. I'll associate back to um, things I experienced in the past. Oh, we tried that in the past. That didn't work.
0: I want to read a paragraph from, from your book. Okay. I'm very verbal. And in, in fact, I've been told that everything happens up here in my head to a point where the rest of my body doesn't even exist, and it's so much about language for me. Okay? I want to read a paragraph about word-based thinking. OK, And then talk about it. Okay. Word-based thinking is sequential and linear. People who are primarily verbal thinkers tend to comprehend things in order, which is why they often do well in school where learning is mostly structured sequentially. They're good at understanding general concepts and have good sense of time, though not necessarily a good sense of direction. Verbal thinkers are the kids with perfectly organized binders and the adults whose computer desktops have neat rows of folders for every project. Verbal thinkers are good at explaining the stops they take to arrive at an answer or to make a decision. Verbal thinkers talk to themselves silently, also known as self-talk, to organize their world. Verbal thinkers easily dash off emails and make presentations. They talk early and often.
1: What I've noticed with verbal thinking, like on things like policy, they overgeneralize. They say, well, we have to have an inclusive classroom or something like that. But how do you do it? They have no specific examples. It's very overgeneralized, top-down thinking. What is the difference between bottom-up thinking and top-down thinking? Okay, the main difference between top-down and bottom-up is bottom-up concepts are formed with specific examples. Okay, let's start with a very simple example. When I was a child, I had to separate cats, dogs, and horses. So how did I do that? Well, originally I used size, but then our neighbors got a dachshund, so I could no longer uh, sort dogs from cats by size. So then I had to find other features that a dachshund shares with dogs, such as barking, the smell, and the shape of their nose. And a bottom-up thinker works better, and it's just like an artificial intelligence program. Let's say you have an artificial intelligence program that diagnoses melanoma skin cancer. Well, you show it 2,000 melanomas and then 2,000 of mosquito bites or whatever other kinds of rashes. It learns to sort. It takes a lot of information to be a good bottom-up thinker because what you're doing is taking specific examples and putting them in categories.
0: So visual thinkers are bottom-up and verbal thinkers are top-down. Visual thinkers are bottom-up, even the mathematicians are much more bottom-up. You talk about how visual thinkers are really needed now in all kinds of potentially dangerous situations and outline how some theorists describe the three main components of risk assessment. I wanna share that with you, okay. what you shared in the book. Um, the three main components of risk assessment as identifying the potential risk, yep. assessing the potential damage, and figuring out how to reduce it.
1: All right. Now, that's very sequential. And they're doing what I do sequentially with words. See, there's three parts of that. All right. Let's go to the disaster chapter in visual thinking, the Fukushima yes. accident. Yes. Now, there's just one step. They they designed the plant, the nuclear plant, perfect, perfect to be earthquake-proof. It shook and it shook and it shook and it shook and and everything's fine. 20 minutes later, the tsunami floods the site. I just see the water coming. As soon as I, water coming over the seawall, flooding the site, I said, watertight doors would have saved it. Because the electrically driven emergency cooling pump drowned. Now, I just see it almost like a movie. And it's just one step. And what's been a shock to me, as I've learned, the mathematical engineer has to go through or the verbal thinker kind of goes through the more complicated way, engineers calculate risk. Okay, you look at the historical data. There were tsunamis that would have breached that, in the past, that 10-meter seawall. And I can't design a nuclear reactor. But maybe I need to be working on the safety systems. Because that electric pump has to run when I need it. And it's not going to run underwater. You see, I just see it. It's like so obvious, the water coming in there. And you see it busting the doors out. And five seconds later, the basement's flooded. You've observed that when
0: engineers discuss risk, they tend to use language that is almost robotic and void of human detail. And this was incredible when I when I read this. A crash is called impact with terrain. Major problems are called anomalies. During a rocket launch, when everything is working smoothly, it is nominal when it isn't. Yeah. There are four levels of failure which I've learned from your book, negligible, marginal, critical, and catastrophic. And the Boeing 737 MAX
1: tragedy was labeled a common mode failure. To me, I just see an angle of attack sensor. And when I found out what that was, and I looked them up online, and my next flight, I'm at the airport mm, checking out angle of attack sensor on a pile of different planes, and I go, you wired a computer that controls how this plane flies and not the regular autopilot you wired this computer that the pilots didn't know about to a single extremely delicate fragile sensor that a bird can just bust off the airplane yeah how did you do that no one asked the simple question if a bird snaps off the angle of attack sensor what will the plane do how do we begin to improve how language is used
0: to describe scenarios? how how do well, I think we need to, what we
1: need to be doing is have teams with different kinds of thinkers on the team. And the first step is you have to recognize it. Now, I'm saying, what they didn't have there following as a gnarly old shop guy who would have walked into the CEO's office with an angle of attack sensor. And slid it down the conference room table and saying, you can't wire that computer up to one of these. Period. You see, I'm kind of visualizing that as kind of a fun scene. Yeah, I
0: am too. I am too. It's like a little movie in my head.
1: If that had happened, you know, this wouldn't have happened. The planes would still be up there. And then there were other mistakes made. They wanted to not do simulator training for the pilots. But if they'd wired the computer to two angle of attack sensors and it had the angle of attack disagree function functional on these planes, that tells you one of them's broken. But the default setting should have been fly normally if it breaks off, and return to the airport. When you think about it, yeah. you see how basic yeah. that is. It's 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 it's
0: logic. But you know, you you've stayed in the book, and and this is something as somebody who is very verbal, I it re- this book really impacted sort of the way I behave. And you state that by default, verbal people tend to be the ones who dominate conversations. They're hyper-organized and social. How can verbal thinkers best communicate with visual thinkers and give them the space to even slide that connector down the conference room table? Well, we need all the different kinds of minds. So what do we do? do? How do we create scenarios where visual thinkers, verbal thinkers, any type of neurodiverse thinker can be more collaborative?
1: I I think the first step is we got to realize the different kinds of thinking exist. Uh, Combined teams is what we should be doing, recognizing the skills that they bring to the table. And they have different specific skills. Like let's take architecture versus engineering. So the architects, so I was just reading an article about a famous architect today, you know, and he wants to make a building that looks like a Jenga tower, then the engineers have got to make sure that Jenga tower doesn't fall down. And the engineers are going to, okay, the elevator is going to work, water systems, power, and the and the architect wants it to look pretty and look nice and uh, not just be a box. But you need both kinds of minds. I want to ask you
0: about the term neurodiversity. It's a, it's a term that originated in the autism community, and it really became a rallying cry for people who had been marginalized because of their difference. And proponents of neurodiversity strove to change the medical model that reduces people to their diagnosis or to their label. And you write that the central idea behind neurodiversity is to find a new paradigm for thinking about neurological disorders.
1: Well, I, I tell business people that you need at these different kinds of mines. Now I'm thinking of the millennial tower in San Francisco that's tilting, that mm. tilts another few inches and the elevators won't work. I wouldn't give you five cents for an apartment in that building. And they were cheap and they didn't put the pilings down to bedrock. Well, that is where, if you listen to some old concrete foundation worker on the site to put the pilings down to bedrock. It would be my kind of mind that would have gone, oh man, the suits are crazy. Why are they doing this? So you you need you need those different kinds of minds. And the other thing is, I worked with a lot of people that probably were autistic. I'm gonna estimate that drafting people, designing entire factories, designing equipment, people inventing mechanical things and building it, 20% of them were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. You know, undiagnosed. Now the way I Got ahead in the seventies. I can tell you, being a woman was a bigger barrier than autism. Hmm. I made sure I was very good at what I did, and what I did was I learned to sell my work. I'd show off my drawings, and there's no way I can show off a drawing on an audio podcast, but I would show people my drawings. I sold Cargill. I designed the front end of every Cargill beef plant because I sent a drawing to the head of Cargill and pictures. Dr. did I want you to I want you to
0: tell my listeners how you learned to draw.
1: Well, my mother teaching me to draw. And then there was a draftsman named Davy who worked at a construction company. And so I I learned, I watched how he drew. But before I could learn how to draw from Davy, I had to learn how to read a blueprint. Okay, you look at a flat drawing and there might be a little square on the the floor plan. And those squares are concrete columns that hold up the roof. I had to learn to read a drawing. So at the Swift plant, they gave me a copy of a beautiful set of hand-done drawings, very detailed. I walked around in that plant for two days until I could relate every single line on that drawing to a door, a window, a piece of equipment, a column. Of course, the water tower was easy. That was just a great big circle on the drawing. And then after I learned how to read the drawings, then I just copied the way Davey did it. And it kind of appeared almost like magic. And I can remember in 1978, I have a drawing of a dip-that system, and I remember drawing that. And I'm going, I couldn't believe I had done it. Because a lot of people thought it was stupid and they didn't think I'd amount to anything. And I remember looking at that drawing and I'm going, stupid people wouldn't draw a drawing like this. That's really my self-esteem.
0: And some of your drawings are included in your book, which I love. Yes. One of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about the term neurodiversity was the idea that people talk about neurological disorders. And do you think that we'll ever dispense with this word disorder and just think about these conditions as different?
1: There's a certain amount of of variation in, in brains and behavior. I think it's just personality variant. You know, when does geeky become autistic? You see, mm. it's a continuous trait. So, you know, a certain amount of this is normal variation. Now, obviously, if you never learn to speak, yeah, that's a disorder. Right. And the right. problem we've got with autism is you're going from Elon Musk and Einstein to somebody as an adult can't dress themselves and we call it the same thing. That's... Horrible overgeneralization by the verbal thinkers. Right. All I can say, the business people, we need these different kinds of minds. We need to be putting all the hands-on classes back in the schools, because we got infrastructure falling apart right now, bridges falling down, all kinds of stuff. Dr. Grandin, my last question is this.
0: You write about how while autistic people may have problems in some areas, they also may have extraordinary and socially valuable powers, provided that they are allowed to be themselves autistic?
1: Well, they also have to be able to have access to, okay, if you have a third grader who's super good at math and you make him do baby math, he needs that old-fashioned algebra book out of the attic. I I don't need it. I need to have art and be growing up with tools. And I got that. Because if you're not exposed to enough different things, or, or I was exposed to musical instruments and I had lessons, I couldn't play this little flute, but I was exposed to it.
0: Now, I understand you have um, that melodies
1: are the only things you can memorize without a visual image. Well, you see, I see the flute when I talk about it. And I'm seeing the piano that I had some piano lessons on. See, there's nothing abstract there. Interesting. It's so fascinating. Seeing myself playing chopsticks on the piano, I got little, not much further than that. But at least I was exposed. Another kid, you expose them to that flute or a guitar, they'll just pick it up and play it. Right. But they're not going to. How are you gonna know you're good at musical instruments if you know, I suppose Music and math tend to go together. Well, music is really based on math in so many ways. It is.
0: Dr. Grandin, I'd like to close the show today with a quote of yours from your 2010 TED Talk. You stated this, if by some magic autism had been eradicated from the face of the earth, then men would still be socializing in front of a wood fire at the entrance to a cave.
1: Well, who do you think designed some of the first technology? Not the chatters <laughs> around the campfire. It would have been someone sitting in the back of the cave, uh, you know, trying to uh, make a stone spear or something like that. That we, we you, you see, the brain can be more social or the brain can be more interested in what they do. You see, I am what I do. And the happiest times of my life is doing you know, really interesting things in my career. Something that works and improves treatment of animals. Real things. How do we make real change and improve something on the ground? Well, I'm
0: hoping that your book will really show people the important changes that we need to make and ways to think about the world in new ways to make it better. Thank you, Dr. Grandin. Thank you so much for making the world a better place with your work. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Temple Grandin's latest book is Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. Her website is templegrandin.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both.
2: I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.